You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have Kim West, she's a founder uh, of a company called, or a website called Sleep Lady. She's referred to as the, the Sleep Lady, it's a trademark term for her. She's also an author. So Kim, uh, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Thank you. Thanks for having me. How did you become the, uh, the Sleep Lady? What's your, uh, <laughs> how did you get that name? Um, well, I've been a family therapist for over 25 years. And when I started to work with babies in sleep over 20, over 20 years ago, too, um, I had a client who was three years old and I was calling to check up on how his sleep was going uh, with his mom. And he heard me talking about him and his mom talking about him. And he actually gave me the name. He said, Mommy, are you talking to the sleep lady? And I said, I like that. I like that. But how I became a sleep lady was when I was pregnant with my first daughter and my older brother and his wife had just had their first son who wasn't sleeping and they were a wreck. You know, they're stressed out. Um, They were feeling like their work performance was being affected. They were saying things like, I'm never having any more children. And I thought, oh my gosh is this a problem that I I didn't even think that that would be a problem, you know, as a pregnant mom. And uh, so I began to research and um, figure out a way that I could use my, my background, my master's in, in child and family development to help me. And of course I actually had the baby and had to, um, and I got, well, I should say I got some bad advice unfortunately. And so I had to kind of go inward, figure out another way to do things differently. And I really wanted to, at that time, uh, there was only one method, um, which was Ferber, um, what they call in the United States, Ferber, other parts of the world, they call controlled crying. I call it time. What is it Ferber? Ferberizing. Yeah. I mean, yep. Because Dr. Richard Ferber was the First author and first doctor. Oh. Yeah. And unfortunately. Like raising a, raising a fervor, F-E-R-V-O-R. But it was oh. Fervor. 
I know. Yeah. I mean, he, I, my understanding is that he doesn't love that his name has become a verb. Um, and so yeah. I, I try to call it. Maybe something. he was made into a, maybe he was the one that made the fur <laughs> Yeah. Right. No, I don't think so, but <laughs> yeah. that would be funny. Um, his method is basically called graduated extinction. So um, where you put the baby in awake, awake, you leave them and you check on them in timed increments. Um, and then the other method is uh, really become f- popular by Dr. Weisbluff. And that's full extinction. Put the baby in the crib, leave the room, don't go in all night, no matter how long they cry. And uh, I was uncomfortable with two of those, those two methods. I also know that they don't always work because never does one thing work for everything. Uh, and because I'm such a um, supporter of a secure attachment, I uh, came up with a gentle method um, that we're referring to as parental fading. So you don't leave your baby or child to cry alone to go to sleep. Right. Okay. Yeah. So what's the, uh, what's the method look like in comparison? Yeah. So you put the baby or child into their bed awake, right? We all kind of say that. And then uh, you stay with them and you stay and offer, you know, physical and verbal reassurance, even pick up to calm if needed. And you do that at bedtime and each waking at night until they're asleep. And every three nights you move farther away from the bed. So therefore you're doing less and less as your child begins to incorporate the skill independently. So it's just an option, just like any, all the other methods, my method, which has been coined the sleep lady shuffle uh, is, you know, not a one size fits all, um, but it's an option for those parents who don't want or can't or tried a more crying out methods and it didn't work. So I like, I feel like parents really, really need those options. And they all, because I should say, because to be consistent, once you start sleep training, uh, you really need to pick the method that you're going to be able to follow through with consistently. And that's the right match for your child's temperament and your family philosophy. But what happens if you're getting further away and being there less, and then there's a bad night, you know, the kid's sick, or for some reason they're just, nothing calms them down. They keep crying. What do you do then? Do you move closer in a few steps and reset? Do you reset all the way? What do you do? Yeah. Well, I mean, some of it obviously depends on the details of of how long the parents have been um, sleep coaching, what's the age of the child. But in general, uh, I would recommend that if a child gets sick in the middle of sleep training, I'd have you, you know, move closer um, or if you're already sitting close because they got sick in the first three, three to four nights, then I might have you stay in that position longer. So sort of pause, if you will. Okay. And this uh, is mostly for newborns or what about older children? No. Have, uh, yeah, no, my book goes from... Well, I talk about babies under six months, but I, I really don't recommend full-on night and nap coaching until six months. Sometimes you can start a little bit earlier, um, but really each baby under six months needs to be assessed. Um, but it's six months to six years of age. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, I, I personally worked with older kids in my practice 
um, as a therapist. Uh, but, you know, if you're talking about just straight up behavioral sleep problems, um, my, that's the age group that my book covers. With older kids, so what you have a, rule out. Yeah, what if there's an older kid that something happens, you know, they, they have a traumatic event, they start wetting the bed or not sleeping or having nightmares. For, for a child over six? Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry, I didn't hear the beginning of your question. So for a child over six, uh, the one of the reasons why I don't address that in my book, um, but have addressed it in my practices, sometimes you have to rule out generalized anxiety disorder, or if they had a traumatic event, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and they may need um, some even short-term psychotherapy. You know, you don't yeah. want to you know, you have to address the a, a potential underlying problem. The other thing that also gets missed with um, behavioral sleep problems is sometimes they they are coexisting with an underlying medical sleep problem. So allergies, asthma, in particular, the medication to treat asthma, uh, reflux, uh, restless leg syndrome, obstructive sleep apnea, even with some older children, narcolepsy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you recommend that uh, you know if you suspect your child's having a problem to maybe sit with them after they go to sleep and watch them for a few minutes and see if they're snoring or if they're thrashing or doing things maybe a couple times during the night? Um, I always recommend. It, sometimes it's hard to to know that because we often will, for instance, snore in REM sleep, which is later at night. Uh, But certainly if a parent's really concerned and they don't have a monitor, they could either get a monitor or borrow a video monitor and watch their child that way, or they could sit in the room if they felt comfortable. But I, I always have parents, before we start sleep training or coaching, get what I like to call the green light from their pediatrician. So that we've done at least as much due diligence as we can. And then in my history form that every parent fills out before we start um, sleep training, there are lots of questions to help them rule out and to help me know whether they need to be referred out. Uh, For instance, common signs of even just obstructive sleep apnea uh, are sweating, uh, particularly in the head, uh, snoring, mouth breathing restless sleep. Those are the top. You said pickling of the head? What does that mean? No, I said sweating. Yeah. Particular particularly on the head. Oh particularly (laughs) particularly on the head. I think you said pickling of the head. I thought that was a new phenomenon or something. (laughs) Particularly particularly head sweating. Yeah. Yeah. What ages have you seen uh you know, these things happen at all ages, or is there a more typical range where it happens? Uh, the medical, the underlying medical, or? Yeah, the medical, well, yeah, both. Uh, the medical stuff, the underlying medical, and then just the, uh, you know, the, the weaning, and the, the self-soothing of being able to sleep on their own. Um, so the youngest age I've ever seen a baby with obstructive sleep apnea, as opposed to some of the kind of apneas a baby can have when they're premature uh, is nine months of age. Uh, mm. I see it more commonly uh, in my practice and in doing public speaking with uh, two, three, four, five-year-olds um, and just went undiagnosed, uh, not 
not uncommon. So behavioral sleep problems, I mean, honestly, I think that under six months, babies are so different um, and you're uh, much more uh, fragile, if you will. And, uh, and, you know, some can have reflux, some could be born early, all kinds of factors that make it harder. There's not like a big fat bell curve like there is with the kids over six months. So, you know, I wouldn't even say there's a, a particular age group that's more popular than another to have sleep problems. I think maybe sometimes parents get to six months and they're like, well, I can suffer for a few a few more weeks or a few more months. And so you might see a lot of babies, you know, eight, nine, 10, 10 months of age, but really, really pretty much six months to five years of age is, is very common at all along, along there. And the common types of what I call sleep crutches, maybe I should just back up and tell you what a sleep crutch is. So in the, in the behavioral sleep science world, they call it a negative sleep association. So anything that has to be done to you or for you to put yourself to sleep and back to sleep. So I always tell parents, like, think back to the day before having kids. Uh, Maybe you had, and and as a woman before being pregnant, because lots of women have disturbed, you know, sleep problems, um, reflux as an example when they're pregnant. But think back when you had to go to bed earlier, let's say you had to get a really early flight in the morning, you know, one of those 6 a.m. flights, and you tried to go to bed earlier than you normally do. So maybe you, you know, took a warm shower, maybe, you know, read a book, maybe did some yoga, deep breathing, and then you had to still do something to turn your thoughts off uh, at night. So you really are actually doing something to help yourself go to sleep. It really is a skill. And then you have to apply that during the night because we all have what's called partial arousals as we cycle in between REM and non-REM sleep. So do our babies. Uh, there's, uh, you know, their sleep architecture develops in the first two years of life. So it mimics an adult, but either way they have REM and non-REM. And so when you cycle in between, this is when you may have a partial arousal. Some large, we largely don't even wake up for them. You and I, if we have good sleep um, and we don't have any negative sleep associations, but if you did, you know, you'd wake up and you'd need whatever it was done to you to help you get to sleep to begin with. So if a child is, let's say, rocked to sleep, you know, in a parent's arm at bedtime, they rock the baby totally asleep, put them in the crib, kind of sneak out of the room, hope they stay asleep. And then every time they wake up in between those partial arousals or those um, sleep cycle transitions, they're going to need the parent to come back in and rock them back to sleep. And so this tends to get worse and worse over time, often. Uh, And I I also find that parents start adding on new sleep crutches, like, oh, I used to be able to nurse you to sleep and put you down and everything was great. And then I had to start nursing you and rocking you. And then I had to start nursing you, rocking you and bouncing you to get you to sleep. And before I know it, you know, I'm doing this for half an hour and I put you down the crib and you still wake up right away. And that's usually when the parents are calling 
me or one of my dental sleep coaches and saying, nothing we're doing is working anymore. We need help. Our child's getting up, you know, six, eight times a night. And why would the crutches need to multiply in the first place? And why do you think that happens? I think it's sort of like it, it, it's like that it loses its strength or we build up a tolerance, if you will. Now, now that's not true for all children, but I have found it to be common. I think part of it is because it's kind of loses its um, strength, if you will. Um, but also our kids are just getting smarter. After a while, they figure out like, oh, so you're going to put me down. <laughs> when I'm um, when I'm just about asleep or almost asleep, and uh, and I figured that out, and then I wake up and I'm upset, uh, and then I want you to pick me back up. So super common. So what's the solution? Do you vary the uh, the crutches? Does that work better, or re- you know, do them in a different order, or what do you do? Uh, well, usually we just have to wean off the crutches. So. Um, we always have to put our children to bed, or at least this is the goal. The first goal in sleep uh, coaching is to um, put your child down awake at bedtime after a soothing bedtime routine, after a great day at apps, any way you can get them, and an early enough bedtime, really getting that we can talk about this too, if you want that sleep window, right? That's in sync with the circadian rhythm. Um, And then we help them and stay with them while they're learning this new skill, which can be super frustrating for them. You can imagine it's, uh, they're not going to, if they're pre-verbal, they're not going to understand why you're changing your ways. And then if they are verbal, they'll be upset, they'll cry, and they'll have words for you. Like, no, mommy, I can't do this, or daddy, lay down with me. They don't understand why you decide to suddenly change the routine. So you just have to um, let them cry through one session of this, or how many times? Well, it depends on what, what sleep coaching method you use, right? Extinction, graduated extinction, or parental fading. So, you know, if you use my method of parental fading, you would stay with your baby or child. You'd offer physical, you know, patting, shushing, humming, singing. It's okay, honey. I'm here for you. If they get really hysterical, a hug, a hold, a pick up to calm, a put down, really trying to help them. And over the first three nights, doing less and less as they start to learn the skill. And all of a sudden, a lot of parents will say, oh my gosh, he's started to pull it on his ear or rub the sheets or uh, lift their legs up and plop them down. And you see them starting to learn what makes them feel good and helps them go to sleep themselves. It's really empowering. I remember I used to, um, I used to lay with my kids and I'd turn out the lights and my son would say, I can't see you're not supposed to see in a bed, you know. Yeah. Uh-huh. Maybe, maybe just uh, hanging out with them in the darkness, you know, with no radio or TV or any of that stuff or phones. Maybe that's a calming way to help things as well. I don't know if the parents well, turn on lights or what they do. Definitely no phones for our kids or TVs in their room would be really helpful. I mean, screen time. You know, I, it's an ideally you want no screen time for an hour, even better, two hours before bedtime. 
because, you know, the screen time teaches there, tells the brain not to secrete that drowsy making hormone melatonin. Um, so it makes it harder to go to sleep and stay asleep. And apparently there's lots of right. kids still in the United States that have TVs in their room. So what's, um, how long does this usually take the full program to that? I guess the end goal is for the, uh, the child to sleep consistently through the whole night without yeah. the parent having to go in there at all. Yeah. So, uh, if, if the child, for instance, is old enough and healthy enough and growing and everything to sleep through the night without a feeding, right. In terms of like a baby, but yes, that's the goal. I would say it on average, it takes seven to 10 nights, uh, for the baby, let's say to start to largely sleep through the night. And then the morning nap starts to, you know, well, naps in general take about two to three weeks. And then the morning nap falls into place first, and then the afternoon nap. Slightly older kids and kids in, in beds, uh, especially ones whose parents have been really inconsistent for several years, they can take more like two to three weeks because uh, they can also get out of bed, negotiate more, you know, <laughs> stall tactics, all those other things that, you know, babies and cribs can't do. Yeah, stall tactics never stop. Yeah. Even when they're older, I noticed that they just evolve. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I get that, you know, part of it is that our children just want to connect with us. You know, they've had a long day, you know, with school and playing or even sports. And that's really why bedtime, bedtime routine is so helpful. Uh, it's really helpful for us as adults um, and for our children so we can have that kind of last connection before we go for the big night separation. Makes sense. Okay. So you said that um, how, how will do you have a network of pediatricians that refer your program or do people find out about your program first and then ask their pediatrician about it or how do you, how do you get clients? I would say my two main sources in the last 25 years have been uh, word of mouth, because you help a family and you get their baby and child sleeping through the night and their life transforms and they tell everyone. I mean, sleep is just the most amazing gift. And then they'll go back and tell their pediatricians. And uh, and then the pediatricians are so grateful to have, uh, you know, a, a general sleep coach or myself uh, available to refer to. And then I just ended up having pediatricians refer to me, too. You know, very good. What's, what's the best way for people to find out more and to get in contact? Yeah. So you can go to sleeplady.com. I have uh, three books you can look at on Amazon, The Sleep Lady's Good Night Sleep Tight, The Good Night Sleep Tight Workbook, and I now have The Good Night Sleep Tight Workbook for Children with Special Needs. And on sleeplady.com forward slash coaches, you can see a directory of my gentle sleep coaches that are all over the world, and I think in about 15 different languages. So they're, And they can, all, they can work for wow. you virtually. Oh, you can do it over Skype and everything? Yeah. That's great. Thanks, Mom. Very good. Well, Kim, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues 
when we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.